Hi, everyone. Sorry we were gone for two weeks with no explanation. I had to run away to Latin America to do shadow work in the mountains again. Yes, and I refuse to be associated with anyone who does shadow work in the mountains, so I couldn't be in contact with you for that period of time. Hey, going to the Andes was literally the only way I could think of to stay off of TikTok for a week. Not, I don't know, deleting the app? That would be like taking my grandmother off of her oxygen tank or turning off her judge duty you were literally sending me tiktoks while you were there oh oh so i was just supposed to take shits in silence read the shampoo bottles like i live in the fucking 1600s did they even have shampoo bottles in the 1600s (laughs) yeah we hiked a mountain while i was there and like we would stop to look at the view and i'd just be like this is cool but like where is the subway surfers split screen that one political cartoon of the kid trying to find the like button on a book It's okay for me to be on TikTok, but like there's something very strange about in real life watching someone that you love and respect, like an elder scrolling through TikTok. I know what you mean. Like watching my grandma in hostess on her deathbed scroll through blackhead removal videos and like just dropping a like on every monkey video she (laughs) sees. And then being in Ecuador where the 80 year old women are like herding goats and breathing in mountain air. Like no shade to my grandma. She deserves to watch her 16 part true crime TikToks, but it's just like very far from natural and probably the fate that we will all end up succumbing to right but then at the same time there's something deeply primal about it yeah that's very true just like watching someone turn their brain off and enter a totally passive state it is very primal because seeing anyone else on tiktok is a cruel reminder that we look that way too like are you ever just like scrolling and become hyper conscious of your (laughs) passivity and you're just unable to move like full-on sleep paralysis style you're just like forced to sit in that little shame bubble and digest the content that is served to you born to herd goats forced to watch family guys slime video split screen yeah i mean tiktok even the name it's just like the sound a clock makes it's like a horrible mockery of the time it's sucking out of all of us it's it's just like the sinister smirk of the amazon logo or even how zuck named his shit the metaverse after that like capitalist hellscape virtual reality in the science fiction book um snow crash they just do it on purpose it feels like (laughs) they love to kick their little feet and laugh at us while they milk our souls for everything we've got yes so as always we will be talking about another way the elites exploit the purest and most intricately beautiful parts of the human experience today's episode time i'm evangelia and i'm emily and welcome to what's gonna happen So in the very first episode of this show, you had said that you constantly feel like you're running out of time. Do you feel that you have a lot of anxiety around time in general? Well, I think I've always been very conscious of like getting older and time going by on a larger scale. Like when I was little, I simultaneously hated being a kid and never wanted to grow up. Mm. I wasn't necessarily scared of aging in particular, like the process of it. I was honestly just really afraid of having to work. Mm, Yeah, I didn't want to get older because I was just terrified of the prospect of shaving. Everyone has their reasons. (laughs) I thought that shaving felt like scraping off a layer of skin every time you did it, like before I knew what shaving was, and no one really clarified, so I was just very scared of it. I actually don't even shave as an adult, so... Old habits die hard. Yeah, some things stick. Actually, I did kind of traumatize myself when I was like 14. I thought it would be really grown up to like groom my pubes. So I put my leg up on the shower caddy and tried to really get in there. But I put too much weight on the caddy and it fell off the wall and onto me. And all the shampoo spilled out and I slipped and I got wrapped up in the shower curtain and fell on the floor. And in the process, I sliced my my loins right down the middle oh my god you completely <laughs> self-sabotage yep. i think you actually told me about that mm-hmm. when it happened yep i self-sabotaged and i would do it again <laughs> i know i said i wasn't particularly scared of aging but i actually do remember being super upset when i turned 10 because i was like i thought that was old mm. like i was like oh my god there's two digits in front of my age now i have lost my innocence yeah yeah and true and you don't get another go at that until you're like into triple digits like that is kind of a milestone you most people only get once in their life yeah 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 I remember you were worried about that I remember when we were little like I always kind of wanted to be older but you were like very into being your age and staying young 
Yeah, I was like really afraid of losing my looks, even though they like hadn't even come in yet. Like I remember seeing girls in their late teens and early twenties when I was a kid, and almost like being jealous. But then I would be like, "It's fine," because when I'm their age, I'm gonna be hot and they're gonna be old. <laughs> That's like so evil. Do you do you think kids think that about you now? I get anxious that they do. I feel like most little kids are not that sinister. Like you were pretty terrifying for thinking that, just like preying on the downfall of older women although once a little girl that I was babysitting asked me how old I was and I asked her to guess and she said 40 and then she asked me if I was a man or a woman and then she poured liquid soap all over all her toys and her bed and did a handstand (laughs) interacting with kids is so insane like having a little sister who's nine years younger puts time into perspective a lot was there ever a moment where you realized, like, wow, she is not little anymore. She is actually a tween now. Yeah, my dad told me he took her to a Girl Scout dance, and she doesn't even care about her friends anymore. She just wants to be around the cool kids. Aww. That moment when you just, like, like become Judas for the first time. Yeah. It's a, it's a coming-of-age moment in <laughs> every little really girl's getting, life. Uh, getting into being a teen. Yeah, betrayal is the number one step of teenhood. Yeah. <laughs> I follow your sister on TikTok, and she made this one video um, that was like a before and after slide of her like two years ago versus her now, which look virtually the same because she is literally a kid. And her caption was like, I used to want to be cool. I wish younger me could see me now. (laughs) She's so ridiculous. I wish she didn't have me blocked on TikTok. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It just made me realize that like the way that trend cycles are getting shorter and nostalgia seems to be appearing for times that weren't that long ago. And the self-comparison culture online is starting to like seep into the younger generation and forcing this weird kind of like in the moment nostalgia. Like it's starting to affect kids like our digital footprints almost serve as a time capsule for different periods in our lives you know we know that and we spend most of our time cultivating nostalgia for later I mean even the most basic Instagram filters are meant to make photos look older and more worn than they actually are you know like all of that is having a real effect on the narrative that kids are putting together about their own lives when I was little I wasn't comparing how I looked when I was six to how I look at 10 because I knew I was still you know baking but when kids are forced now to self-actualize and create this like digital character of themselves they're made to look at their own character development just as it's happening yeah and I mean like when you're like a tween early teen like that's when like that's when you start to become a real person like you have Mm -hmm. memories from before that time but that time is like when the core traits of your personality begin to form like it's a crucial time in your life like you are just beginning to become a person and I imagine that's crazy if you feel this drive to constantly be like self-actualizing and self-improving all the time yeah but I mean when it comes to being a tween honestly we were kind of on the internet not in the same I guess way. yeah not in the we same were way. like I mean I was watching ISIS beheading videos so like maybe that's worse maybe who knows what they're watching now though it wasn't your sister like didn't she come across like dental porn <laughs> yes <laughs> Yes, she did. I was like, what is that? She was was like, like, it's dental fetish videos. It's dental fetish videos. (laughs) And like when we were on Instagram, like it wasn't as intense. Like influencer culture wasn't a thing. I see. That like branding yourself to be online was not a thing when we were on the internet. It was, I mean, we did watch a lot of like gore and two girls, one cup. Oh yeah. That was a middle school sleepover classic. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I will say that like I definitely suffer from that forced nostalgia thing like I love my Google photos and I'll like Mm -hmm. look back at my Google photos and feel nostalgic for like June 2022 like I'll look at photos (laughs) from like a few like weeks ago and be like (laughs) the good old days like we have to romanticize our lives when we're living in a recession and in a time where things in the current moment feel very bleak I guess that there's like a self-preservation factor in that um But yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, if we're doing it, they're doing it. Like, especially when you're a tweener, even an early teen, you're kind of entering a second phase of living. And so you get to be nostalgic for something for the first time. And that nostalgia is being expedited by our cachet of self-documentation. And in in a way, I mean, we're entering kind of like that third part of life, that um, post-adolescence part. So we're kind of doing the same thing, I guess. I mean, yeah, like I definitely... Feel, I feel more unsure of myself now than I did a year ago. Really? Yeah. In what way? I just feel more unsure of, like, I think it's because I'm going to graduate college soon. Mm. Um, so I'm about to experience a major change in my life. 
Right. So I actually feel holy shit. I forgot. Like not having gone to college, I forgot. I thought you guys were still in like the first year. Oh no. <laughs> I yeah. I I feel like very unsure of myself because I'm about to experience a major transition hmm. and I'm scared. And do you find yourself like looking to the past to find comfort and like yeah, I knowing? Yeah, it like provides a sense of stability. Hmm. Interesting. I am definitely way happier as an adult than I ever was as a child. Oh, me too, for sure. Like, I always knew that I would be happier as an adult from when I was a little ass kid. Like, I think having faith that time would be on my side saved me in a lot of ways and kind of primed me to have a similar faith in time now. What's interesting is that I didn't think I was going to be happier as an adult. I mean, like, when I was a kid, like, everybody says, oh, I I love my childhood so much. I was literally like, when the school play is over, I'm killing myself. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I I was miserable. (laughs) Why do you think that is? Why do you think we're happier as adults? I mean, I think we're happier as adults because we were adult children in many ways, honestly. I think a lot of people can relate to like having to grow up really fast. I think especially growing up in New York, I think having, you know, to take on a lot of emotional responsibility at a young age, whether that's for other friends or for parents or for other family members or just because we struggled with like mental illnesses as as young kids. Like I've been depressed since I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I definitely had a lot of shame about my sexuality. You know, I dealt with a lot of traumas and stuff. So I think I had adult worry and adult neurosis but I had all of the like the chokehold of like adult like restrictions as well so I didn't I didn't feel a sense of freedom in being a kid I was very aware that there was another side to life that gave you a lot more control and I was like very determined to find that yeah I just like I knew there was something wrong with me but I didn't know what it was Mm, so glad I what is it what is it many things Uh uh-huh which ones you know, like, I have mental illness and I'm gay. Mm-hmm. But, like, for real. Right. <laughs> and I, felt I really don't think anybody would argue after listening to this podcast that we're not mentally ill and gay. <laughs> but just in case this happens to be the first episode, somebody... I think already to- they can tell. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I felt really trapped as a kid, but there is this freedom about being completely untethered when you're a kid. Like, you have way less to lose. Even in my early 20s, I don't have a family I built or a career or a mortgage. But at the same time, my relationships have more weight because I've been cultivating them for longer. My schooling is more important than it's ever been because I'm paying for it. Right, yeah. I guess I wish that I had known those freedoms to be freedoms when I was a kid. I feel like I always thought the stakes were high. But like, I thought that if I got a 70 on my decimal points quiz in third grade, then I would not have any job prospects later in life. (laughs) Oh, yeah, me too. I mean, my dad used to always tell me that a C is a Jewish F. Yeah, for sure. My dad made every... Yeah, you had a Jewish dad and Asian mom, bro. Like, that that will kill a person. Yeah. (laughs) 4.0 GPA, though. Couldn't have done it without them. I I needed my model minority parents. (laughs) I mean, like, neurotic parents will convince you that life is just a never-ending hellish game of dominoes. Mm -hmm. But I also was aware that I had less to answer to as a kid than my parents did. Although, gaining responsibilities throughout your life is not a linear thing, because responsibilities actually tend to peak and plateau when you're middle-aged. And then from that point on, you start going back to not having to worry about as much. You know, because your kids move out of the house, you retire, and at a certain point, you don't even have to wipe your own ass anymore which is the freedom that I'm fighting for now Mm -hmm. right (laughs) although I mean who's to tell if like we even will get to retire and uh develop dementia okay well I'm gonna shit all over the Amazon warehouse that I have to work at when I'm 90 so they better be prepared for that (laughs) yeah but also I mean there's also freedoms that you gain in being tethered to things and I think that's what I looked to a lot in my childhood and that's why I was excited to get older because Like when you have a successful career, for instance, yes, you have to upkeep it, but you also get more access to more resources because of it, you know, or when you pay a mortgage, like, of course, yes, you have to make those payments, but you have the freedom in doing whatever you want with your house. I mean, one freedom that is nice about being a kid is that you don't have to emotionally regulate as much. Mm -hmm. You can have like a total meltdown without being escorted out of Barnes and Noble. 
Right. Yeah. I don't know, though, because I feel like there's actually way more freedom in knowing emotional regulation for adults. Like, it may seem like a freedom for a kid to be able to scream and cry in public, but for the kid, they feel very trapped in that state. Like, being able to have sovereignty makes us more independent. Like, I would gladly trade all my freedoms from childhood with the freedoms that I have now. I mean, that's true. Things don't feel as free when you're a kid. Like, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was constantly like, I need to decide what I'm going to do with my career now. (laughs) When I was like seven years old, I was like, I mean, clearly I'm not, I mean, I'm not ahead of the curve enough. (laughs) How do we play with blocks in a way that's going to increase our productivity for the next quarter? Right, exactly. Like, you know, even though you don't have a job at that age, like there's a lot of pressure to think about and pick one thing you want to do and commit to that forever. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it was like a way that they would tried to build our confidence but it ended up doing the opposite yeah it actually freaked me out like that's a big part of why I was so scared to become an adult because I was like I can't commit to one thing it's like I'm 10 years old last week I wanted to be a ballerina that's not true I actually never wanted to be a ballerina it's more like last week I wanted to yeah I was about to say uh, I used to want to be a firefighter but I never wanted that (laughs) See, I still feel pressured to, like, choose my thing. Exactly. I wonder if that's still the case, though. I think because society had been shaped by boomers when we were younger, and a lot of us were raised by boomers, the idea of, like, committing to one thing was a lot more popular because boomers lived in a time of job security and less variety in what jobs were available in general. And even to women in POC, like, especially, like, my grandma would always say, in my day, if you were an average woman, you could either be a teacher, a nurse, a hairdresser, or a secretary. You know, now you can kind of be anything and I feel like that was kind of the sentiment that we were raised in is like you pick one thing and you commit to it but also my grandma was a very unique person and she would also always say like when you're older jobs will exist that you never thought were possible so you shouldn't confine yourself to one thing and I wonder if that kind of Barbie I can be anything sentiment is more widely accepted now or if kids are still pressured to pick one thing because we're still living under capitalism I actually do think it's changing I think kids will always go through phases but there's overall been kind of an embrace of like personal style and the pursuit of individual freedoms that is changing how confined kids will feel in choosing their paths yeah Yeah, I think, you know, our generation and probably even Gen Alpha are catching on to this idea that security is not promised by any means. So subscribing to one path does not guarantee anything. And that's a sad thing because it should be. You should be able to say, like, I want to do this thing and then do it for the rest of your life. But even even when you're like contributing to the system in the way that is expected of us, it's still not necessarily going to work out for you. And we're not even valued when we do fit ourselves into that system. Yeah, you know, I feel like everyone always says time is money, but time is actually way more valuable than money. Yeah, it's so valuable that we're forced to commodify it. To a capitalist system, our time, attention, and compliance are the most important and most exploitable attributes we have. And time is definitely more valuable because it's inherent. You know, money is just a tool. And we know time is more valuable because almost all of us can agree that it is severely undervalued. You know, that's why the minimum wage argument has been a question for so long. You know, according to coffeeschool.com, which is my favorite news source. Oh, yeah. Very reputable. A barista on average can make up to 100 drinks in an hour. And yet minimum wage in New York is worth like two to three coffees, depending on how much fucking coca mocha caramel discharge you put in it. And I for one need at least five pumps of coca mocha caramel discharge in my coffee. Yeah, don't we all? How the fuck else are you supposed to wake up for your nine to five? (laughs) Exactly. So obviously your time is worth 100 drinks if you're making 100 drinks, you know, or maybe less because you have to like, you know allocate resources to all different parts of a company like I know how businesses work I know everyone can't get paid directly immediately for how much they're putting in but they're getting paid in like two drinks that's like two percent of their work capability like make that make sense well you know workers aren't paid for the value of what they put out Mm -hmm. their boss owns what they put out right and then the workers get paid for their time yeah and the worth of someone's time just like isn't easily measured and is arbitrary. So, Mm -hmm. you know, companies that want to make a profit can be like $6 an hour. Right, yeah. (laughs) So what is your time worth? I mean, depends. You know, like a Monday mid-afternoon is worth like two bananas and a corn chip, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But a Saturday night is worth like 200 bucks. Are you like a monkey that's being experimented on? (laughs) You joke, but I go to a school that does a lot of 
research experiments. Is that how they and, pay the monkeys? And no, I'm saying that oh. I actually had a phase where to make money, I would just do a bunch of paid studies. <laughs> like I was in like four. You have like a third ear growing out of your back. <laughs> it was, they were actually like, okay, they told me that I have the most sensitive taste buds they've ever seen in their life. Well, it that was makes like sense because like, you have ARFID. Yeah, they were like these taste test studies mm-hmm. and like I would have to like taste something and say like how sweet it was. And yeah, they were like, so so does that mean that you accurately could tell the sweetness? That's yeah. cool. How much did you make? Uh, I two, mean, two corn chips and a banana. <laughs> <laughs> I would make like I mean I would do multiple paid studies at once. I would make like fifteen bucks per session. Hmm. So okay. it was like some pocket change. Yeah. At least they were giving you money. Like you're saying that your mid afternoon is worth bananas. I mean, well, this whole thing just reveals how broke I am because I was like, my Saturday nights are really valuable. They're worth like two hundred dollars. That's like the most <laughs> amount of money you could think of. Damn, you're worse than Starbucks. And don't let anyone who ever wants to sponsor us know how low the price is to buy me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that for me, a Monday mid afternoon is worth like six drinks at a low quality bar, and then a Saturday night is worth like a ticket to Rico. But I will accept general admission. I mean, we all have different standards. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's nothing inherently different about a Monday afternoon or a Saturday night other than the fact that I'm in class on Monday and Saturday is my free time. So really, my free time is more valuable to me. Right. But if someone is taking you out of your class, then wouldn't your cost for a Monday have to make up for how much money you're losing missing that class? You are right. There's nothing worse than skipping class in college and just remembering how much money you're losing. Like college is the only time in your life where you can take a nap and lose $300. Jesus Christ. (laughs) That is horrible. Money and time are like just so closely like intertwined. And like that is what we pay for all of our social media in. Like Of course, we always say we live in an attention economy, but what is attention other than our devoted time? You know, I mean, the fact that our time is the most sought after thing should mobilize us to fight for it more. Like, look at what's happening in France right now. Their age of legal retirement is being extended. You know, their right to time is being encroached upon and they're doing arson about it. The French might be an obnoxious people, but they they do know how to be obnoxious where it counts. They know how to revolt. I don't know what smells worse in that city. All the burning trash or the French people. <laughs> Jesus. What What do you think that fighting for our time would look like in America? Or even like how could the average person fight for their own time against all the time sucks in the world? All the workers' rights fights, like the fight for parental mm. leave or paid sick leave, more vacation time, fighting for a four-day work week. Even people arguing to continue remote working. I mean, there's a lot of problems and valid criticisms with remote work, but it is true that you gain more time in a day when you don't have to worry about traveling. All of those fights are fights in favor of our time. I mean, the fact that so many companies do not offer enough paid sick days is part of why we had such a bad pandemic. Growing up, when I got sick, like my dad would just tell me, like, you take Sudafed and you tough it out and go to school. Yeah, and that is why you've given me strep throat like three times. Hey, I have three child siblings. It's barely my fault. It's a little your fault. Mm, but okay. It's like a, it's like 25% your, it's like 50% because you come and then we hang out and then you're like, oh, by the way, I have strep. Um, okay, but it's like, what's the bigger problem? Me giving you strep or all the corporations allowing right. for people to give each other strep by not offering paid sick leave? According to the National Partnership <laughs> of Women and Families, quote, Implementing emergency paid sick leave through the Families First Coronavirus Response Act prevented 400 COVID-19 cases per day in each state that previously had lacked a paid sick days law, end quote. And like that makes perfect sense. And it should have set a precedent for paid sick leave. But of course, they ended that program in 2020, like the second they could get away with ending it. I mean, yeah, well, the inaccessibility to paid sick leave is like hostile architecture in that rich people in an attempt to punish those who are impoverished punish literally everybody. Yeah, everyone is poor to rich people. That's so. That's true. They don't really care. So true. (laughs) The same National Partnership for Women and Families document says that, quote, workers who interact the most with the public are often the least likely to have paid sick days. Across all service workers, nearly four in 10 lack access to paid sick days. And access is even worse in occupations such as food service and childcare. They're sneezing on the food and the kids. (laughs) Workers in these occupations are also more likely to be exposed to contagious illnesses and therefore to spread illnesses to the public when they're forced to go to work sick. 
you're gonna love this one. Nearly half of restaurant-associated illness outbreaks involve an infected food service worker, and there are approximately 48 million cases of foodborne illness in the United oh States each year, end quote. I'm gonna throw up. Emily, you're killing me over here, bro. <laughs> like, you're killing me. I'm already so disgusted by the bacteria in restaurants. This fact is going to ruin my life. Yeah, I mean, imagine how they feel. Quote, disparities in access to paid sick days disproportionately expose Latinx and black workers to increased risk of illness. Nearly half of Latinx workers and more than one third of black workers report having no paid time away from work of any kind. End quote. Wow. So the U.S doesn't value the health or time of working class minorities. Who knew? We need to tell somebody. We, yeah, we should tell somebody. We, AOC needs to be tweeting about this. Why isn't she <laughs> tweeting about this? But, you know, even when our time isn't being exploited by big corporations and the government, you know, we find our own little ways to waste time. So what are your thoughts on dilly-dallying, considering you are a professional dilly-dallier? I am a professional dilly-dallier. I have been perfecting my craft for a while. Um, I just have, like, a really bad case of I get there when I get there. Like, if I'm going to meet my friends and I decide when I'm getting ready that I want to try a new hairstyle, even if I'm going to be 20 minutes late, I'm trying the hairstyle. I would say 20 minutes is generous. Okay, 40 minutes. <laughs> you coming in with like 18-inch Malaysian extensions and box braids telling us the train was late? <laughs> Please do not put the image of me in box braids in anyone's head. <laughs> you would look like those little white girls who come back from the Caribbean with cornrows and a pink scalp. <laughs> <laughs> I have definitely had people tell me that when I'm late, it feels to them like I don't prioritize them, which I guess is true in a way. But it's more like I, if I feel like there won't be serious consequences if I'm late, I don't care as much. So you just perfectly described not prioritizing someone because it doesn't inconvenience you not to. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like you're worrying more about if you'll be in trouble or not rather than how the other person will feel. I mean, that's like, you know, 90% of my psychology. To be fair, like 30% of the time, I do try to warn people ahead of time if I'm going to be late. Like, I was late to this recording. Right. And I texted you guys. Yeah, I appreciate that. But like 70% of the time, I just lie about how far away I am. <laughs> you're like, I'm literally walking down your block and you're in your room sitting crisscross applesauce in front of your floor length mirror, putting on your fourth layer of plumping gloss and listening to Flo Rida. And I can see you are because I see you on the AirBuds app listening to Flo right up <laughs> it's so much easier to lie than to be on time okay but like why don't you give yourself buffer time like look i understand i'm not the earliest person by any means but i definitely used to be a much later person and then i realized that like no matter how far something is or how ready i have to be i always need to give myself at least an hour and a half to get ready and at least an hour and a half to travel because i have this like delusion that i can get ready really fast like there's different kinds of late people there's late people that take really long to get ready but i'm not one of those people like i could do my routine really quickly my problem is if i have some extra time and then i'll overestimate what i can do with it i'll be like oh i'm ready wait maybe i should just change my whole outfit so that unfortunately still means you're the kind of person who takes a long time to get ready maybe so but also i was raised by late people like i really just never learned that being punctual is important hmm yeah, that's very true. I guess, like, your family and culture's perspectives on time very much dictate how you view it. Like, my parents were raised by immigrants from Greece and Puerto Rico, so they have, like, very shoddy time management, but they've also lived in America for most of their lives, so they're well aware of the importance of punctuality and always kind of, like, emphasize that being on time gets you respect. So I'm, in turn, really bad at time management, but I have a lot of anxiety around it because it's not in my nature, but it's, like, a learned value, kind now, of. I definitely noticed that theme. That's, like, a theme in certain late people. Like, they value being on time but they can't do it. it gives them a lot of agita like people <laughs> yeah. knowing why it's important to be on time but not knowing how to carry that out yeah and i feel like alternatively people don't tend to understand the value of dilly dallying so true. which is actually it's not always a negative thing like I mentioned my parents' cultures because in both Latin American and Southern European cultures and also like African and Arab cultures, it's been studied that timeliness is not as important of a value as it is in like America or in Northern European cultures. And it's, it's a real thing. It's the difference between monochronic and polychronic time approaches. So according to the Project Management Institute. They have an institute for fucking everything. <laughs> yeah. And we find them all and we will cite them. Here. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So they say, quote, to the monochronic individual, schedules are of extremely high importance and time itself is treated as a commodity of high value, as necessary or perhaps even more important than satisfaction, good work and relationships. As a result, this view of time may be stressful. There are cultures that value productivity, that value getting things done on time. They view time as something that can be lost, killed or wasted or conversely as something that can or should be managed and planned and used efficiently. While polychronism is characterized as, quote, time being less tangible and emphasis being placed on the involvement of people and the completion of transactions rather than on schedules. Multitasking is valued. Their perception of time is considered to be more connected to natural rhythms and to the earth and the seasons, end quote. I definitely think there's a place for both systems. Like, I think that both of those philosophies make a lot of sense. And I think, like, it's really about knowing when to prioritize. You can kind of use them both. Like, if your kid is throwing up, you should be able to go into work late or not go in at all. But if you're deciding between going to work on time and picking a cute outfit, then you should probably pick going to work on time. Mm, Yeah. I think, though, it's hard because some people don't know how or when to prioritize certain things. Like, it might seem obvious that, like, your kid being sick should take up more of your time than like picking a cute outfit but like not everybody works like that especially if you have like adhd i mean my outfit's sick too so i guess the question becomes like should your family and community only take priority if there is a negative emergency you know what about if you want to have an extra long breakfast with your partner because they're going on a work trip soon or if you're sharing a tender moment with your child before they go to school and it dips into their first period like should we only make other things a priority over our more demanding responsibilities if their problems that require a solution? I think that is a great question. And I really think that it entirely depends on what you have to do at work or school that day. Like, I think, you know, the prioritization goes both ways. I think if you don't have a meeting or a presentation or your kid doesn't have an important test at school, it should be okay to dip into that time. But if whatever you have to do is going to affect your livelihood, then preparing for long-term consequences is important. So we should be trusted with our own time management, kind of. Like, not me, but everybody else, yeah. (laughs) So you shouldn't be reprimanded for showing up late if you're going to get the work done and, like, show up to the groups that you need to and be involved where you need to be. Yeah, exactly. I believe that the time you spend at work is not as important as the work that you get done. Like, so many people, especially in white-collar professions, spend most of their days at work, sitting in an office, twiddling their thumbs. We talked about this in our last episode. And look, nothing's better than getting paid to take a 25-minute shit at work. But wouldn't it be better if you got paid the same every day, even if you took shorter days because you could complete your workload and then you can go home and take a 25-minute shit in your house or not even need to take a 25 minute shit and give yourself hemorrhoids because you don't need <laughs> to avoid speaking from experience being in an office yeah i don't know like like yeah now that's a cause i am willing to do arson for i think it's these little things that we could implement that would make people feel way less shackled by office jobs and white collar work in general you know i think people feel really trapped in time and like they get these midlife crises because ultimately time is a birthright that we're forced to bargain arbitrarily and there's just something so unnatural about that that causes us to like implode yeah but I will say that I feel like my lateness is not a result of being part of a polychronic home structure I feel like it's more of a personal failure a failure according to who though I mean, maybe I view it as a failure because I grew up in a monochronic society. But at the same time, I do think there's a lot of value in time and prioritizing time. But do you think that it's fair to use timeliness as a tool to measure morality? So if you're late, even when someone tells you that they find that disrespectful, then you're being kind of a dick. But if you're just like a late person and a boundary around that hasn't been defined, like I don't think the act of being late in and of itself has any kind of morality attached to it. Mm, Yeah, I guess it's about agreeing on a framework. When you're going to work in America, you are agreeing to function on a monochronic schedule. Now, I think that that can be changed. I think that certain work environments don't need to be like that. But as long as you know that that's how this society functions, you kind of like are agreeing to respect that. Whereas like in things that you might have more control over, like your friend group, you know, if you know that that's mostly late people, then you can establish a more polychronic model. You know, like saying, let's meet anywhere between three and seven. 
Or if you know that some people want to secure time, but other people are late people, you can do what we do in our friend group and tell the punctual people to meet at a certain time and then tell the late people to be there a few hours earlier so they all get there at the same time. I know Gia's been, I see Gia smiling out of the corner of my eyes, the only punctual person. <laughs> the punctual people in question is just me. Yeah, Gia, it's actually the punctual person and it's Gia. <laughs> Honestly, though, I sometimes think I fall into that category just because you guys are so late by comparison. Yeah, well, you're like you're like fashionably late. Right. Like you're like a 20 minutes late kind of person, whereas like me, Ash and Kayla are like two hours late. Yeah, Kayla has been- Kayla's six hours late. Kay- Kayla was supposed to meet me at my house at four once and she came at 10 p.m. <laughs> Kayla's been so late to Lynx before that she's just, you know what, let's just meet tomorrow. <laughs> she's been a day late to <laughs> Yeah. You know, and like knowing that about her, we can say like, okay, like if we're all planning to meet at seven, we're going to tell her we're going to meet at three. <laughs> and then she'll seven. get there at eight. Right, and then she'll get there at eight. <laughs> I mean, my dad did that to me my whole adolescence. He actually did that to me last weekend. Yeah, but like, what do we do, I guess, with ourselves? Like, in a monochronic world, how do we avoid using timelines as a way of judging ourselves and others for the worst? And I don't just mean lateness. I also mean, like, time in general, like, in terms of how far along we are in life versus other people or how we spend our days or how we look for our age. Like, how do we stay present and not hold ourselves in comparison to others through the lens of time? Well, I mean, you know... I think that when it comes to worrying about how we look for our age, I think decentering the male gaze helps a lot with that. But when you don't have the benefit of being man-hating lesbians like us, it's a lot harder because, well, mm-hmm. there's obviously the human part of fearing aging, which is just, like, the fear of getting weak and dying. There's also, like, the the woman part. And that's that our value is so tied up in our youthfulness that aging feels like expiring. Like, I know I started using retinol when I was 17, and I flew into a panic after I saw what might have been a fine line next to my eye for the first time. (laughs) And to this day, I use retinol four times a week and not to be controversial, but I do wear sunscreen every day. So for those of you curious about my skincare routine, (laughs) I also gua sha. Yeah, our (laughs) listeners are always commenting about how clear your skin sounds. I know, it's so clear you can hear it. Yeah. I honestly feel like women are, like, expected to look even younger these days. Like, you know, we live in a pedocracy, and that's a great way of coping with the fear of aging is just remember, like, if you're afraid of getting older, that's what the pedophiles in power want you to do. Like, I don't know if it's because of the increase in fillers or the normalization of plastic surgery or the, like, Lana Del Rey coquette Lolita thing or beauty filters or the, you know, rise in, like, anime, people liking, you know, lolly anime, which affected aesthetics. But the standard of hotness, I feel like, is younger than ever. Like, I feel like it used to be that girls wanted to look like they were, like, college-aged or maybe, like, you know, early to maybe mid-20s. But now it's, like, women want to look 12. Even Leonardo DiCaprio went from dating 24-year-olds to dating a teenager. Case and point. I also think, though, like, a lot of women want to stay attractive to men, not only because they want, like, sexual approval and the approval of being desired, but also because it does kind of like not protect you but maybe safeguard you in this world in many ways like when men find women unattractive they have much less of a problem being blatantly fucking nasty to them butch lesbians gender non-conforming people fat women old women women of color even have been treated inhumanely by men for ages because a lot of men don't see women as human at all and especially if you're not like sexually appealing then you are just a worthless object you know Mm -hmm. people always say like oh all the feminists are lesbians are ugly women and like while that's obviously not fucking true doesn't it kind of make sense that the people who don't have anything at all to gain from the patriarchy are going to be the ones who most accurately notice its flaws oh yeah i mean men treat ugly women like how i treat like zara pants and they treat hot women like how i treat like Versace pants. At least you leave Zara pants alone. I don't. <laughs> Actually, every time I walk past a Zara, I yell that the pants are all a bunch of ugly, shrill bitches. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ignore that you said that because two out of five of my pairs of pants are from Zara. Which ones? The world may never know. The fact that you can't tell means that I'm pulling them off. It's just like, it's hard not to think about this stuff in our 20s when we're coming into womanhood and kind of being told our demise is just on the horizon. Like, these are our prime modeling years, our prime breeding years, our prime soldier years, you know, so it's time to 
get pregnant, find an agent, and join the Marines. And we need to wear retinol and jade roll our faces all the time. Yeah. Or what about um, people speeding up the aging process with buckle fat removal? You know, everyone thinks they're so slick with their azempic and buckle fat removal, but really, they're all just going to look so much older than they are with time. It's sad because there's these two standards of being super thin and looking super young, and that's just impossible to be both as an adult woman because looking super thin ages you. I'm learning a lot about like appreciating wrinkles and appreciating looking your age from like interviews with older butch women and even just like seeing how older butch women carry themselves because seeing women who take pride in the wear and tear of life in the same way that men do makes it a like it's just a lot less scary of a way of living than clutching on to youth with bleeding fingers. You know, the best thing to do is to not be so concerned with what might happen to our faces and bodies in many years and just kind of appreciate them now because we're never going to look exactly how we do this year or even this month. Wait, but don't say that. Like, yeah, actually, you can't say that. That's the worst. That's the exact line of thinking that stresses me out. It's like, oh, I'm never going to be this hot again. I feel like I'm not fucking seizing the day enough. Oh, God, I'm already getting anxious. Look what you've done. <laughs> I can see that I've upset you. You have upset. Me. But look, I never said that you're never going to be this hot again. I said you're never going to look like this again. You know, I don't think I was hotter when I was 19 or when I was 15. I don't even think I'm going to be in my peak form until I'm like 26. You know, honestly, I've seen people who are way hotter, like in their later adulthood than they were when they were younger. Oh, for sure. I mean, but one day my metabolism is going to slow down and that's it's going to be a disaster. I'm going to die. You are not going <laughs> to die because your metabolism no, does like the I things. No, like I'm going to get diabetes and die. Well, that's a different worry. <laughs> <laughs> I think like it's fair to be concerned about your health and maybe take steps to change that. I won't. But right. <laughs> if you're constantly living in fear, then you're just kind of dooming yourself to the fate that you fear most. Like we're always changing little by little. And I think if we give love to every version of ourselves, we're more likely to just age better because our lives will be made up of building blocks of self-love. You know, people who eat intuitively and moisturize and give themselves massages and get acupuncture and exercise all out of self-love are just gonna age better than people who torture themselves with diets and fillers and comparison out of self-hatred you know and I'm not saying like I'm anti-diet or anti-filter or anything I just think that people who enjoy the present now will get to enjoy the present then you know and it's the people who are constantly preparing for the preconceived horrors of the future that will ultimately end up lamenting the past and it's just like how sad is it that most of those people spent the past that they so woefully reminisce fearing the life that they live now well, I moisturize and exercise out of preemptive self-hatred, so we'll see where that leads me down the road. <laughs> okay, so we'll check back here when we're middle-aged. Yeah, like a little reunion episode, you know, what happened. Yeah, how ugly are they now, really? <laughs> that's that's what all reunions are really about. I mean, let's be honest. Do you think you'll go to your high school reunion? Yeah, I got a stunt on them. Mm -hmm. Show them the wonders of retinol. Exactly. When I was in Ecuador, I met this woman who um, specialized in movement and like, well, first of all, she was built like Mrs. Incredible. So I immediately trusted her with my body and life and would have loved for her to trust me with her body. But, you know, alas. <laughs> but she made us do this thing that I'm about to make Emily do. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm going to make you do something. This is an interactive episode. So if you're listening right now and you're able, just follow along. OK. All right. So Emily, stand up straight and tall. OK. Yeah. All right. And close your eyes. OK. Okay, now lean back as far as you can while still keeping your feet planted. So like lean your whole body back as far as you can, including your legs. Yeah. Okay, now lean forward as far as you can, doing the same thing. Okay, now meet yourself back in the center at your balance. Which one of those three positions was easier to balance? I mean, being in the center. So that is a cool physical representation that there's much more balance in staying in the present than leaning back into the past or forward into the future. I mean, couldn't you have just told the story, though, instead of making me do an Ecuadorian movement exercise? I just wanted to movement exercise. assert some dominance. <laughs> I did a really intense Pilates workout this morning, and I'm sore, okay? Did you actually? Yeah, I actually did. You do Pilates? Yeah, I love Pilates. Okay, Emily. <laughs> Good for you. I like Pilates. I love learning new things about you live. <laughs>
But yeah, that exercise kind of helped me like put things into perspective a little bit because of course I could have just told you that, but there's something about doing it yourself that like physically feels like, wow, like, yeah, that is what my brain is doing when it's weighing out the past and the future. I think that personally, the best way to curb my existential fear of time, whether that's, you know, fearing my own death or the death of loved ones or changes that I'll have to go through or the fate of the world, you know, is just to remember that there are three ways of viewing time. You know, the first is time as a tool of measurement, clock time, date time, the form of keeping track that's kind of necessary for continuity and societal functionality. You know, we need that. But secondly, there is no time, you know, just the present moment. That is the truest form of time, but it's also the hardest to wrap our heads around. So then we have third, the psychological time, which is like our sense of perceived time that view of time is what kind of gives us a false sense of reality that keep us connected to, you know, whatever preconceived issues we have with the past and the future. And it's what leads us to use terms like, you know, we don't have enough time or we're wasting time. Those like monochronic things we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. That psychological perception of time is what keeps us cemented in these narratives that we have about ourselves. And it helps us reinforce this idea that time is linear and we're points that move across it. But in reality, the future kind of comes to us because we're always in the present moment. Viewing time in a linear way can lead us to think that we're going to be happy once we get to that future point instead of thinking that we can attract that happiness by making changes from the present point that we're at now. You know, if we want to feel better tomorrow, we have to do things now because then is not a place. Tomorrow is not a place. It's just another now. Yeah, I mean, dwelling on the past or worrying about the future just takes time away from the present. Yeah, and the present is where all the fucking action lives you know now is the only point of action that ever exists you can regret your past decisions or plan for new ones but you only get to make decisions in the current moment and there's something kind of empowering about remembering that right now is what matters and as long as you live you will have a right now but I do like then I feel like I have to be using now to do something and I feel guilty if I'm not using my now hmm yeah Yeah, I mean, to that, I would say try to step out of the kind of monochronic view of time as something to be used. You know, respect time as something that, you know, maybe can be used, but also respect that time can just be lived. Sometimes reminding yourself of gratitude can be enough. Like you don't need to be doing something crazy to be using time, just acknowledging it and and expressing gratitude for it is using that time well, I think. So when I'm laying on my bed worrying I have colon cancer, that's not wasting my time. Well, if you're scared of something, there's usually actions you can take to address it. You know, worrying about potentially finding out you're sick, to me, sounds like you're living in the future. And if you're worried about it right now and that it's something that's affecting you now, you can make the colonoscopy appointment. Already dead. (laughs) You know what happened? The laxatives that they sent to my pharmacy, I went to get them and my card got declined. That is so embarrassing. (laughs) It was... you know, my girlfriend paid for it because she just spoils me oh, like that. Oh, sugar mama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she paid for my colonoscopy. You know what else happened is that when I went to the front desk to make the appointment, they clapped. Are you serious or are you being like a Tumblr post no, like, like everybody clapped? Like they actually clapped. <laughs> colon cancer rates in young people have been increasing and people do not care about oh. their colon health enough. Everything I would just try to undo, you've just put back in everybody's Yeah, head. by the way. <laughs> you probably all have colon cancer. Yeah, it's the food. It's because we're all eating poison. So Yeah, when I was in Ecuador, they like looked at my blood and they found uh, that I have like leaky gut. And they said like pretty much everybody has leaky gut because our gut health is so bad because of the foods we eat. Oh, yeah. But I'm still getting Chick-fil-A after this. Yeah, and I'm still finishing that bag of Takis. Yeah. I mean, you do what you can now or just don't worry at all. Right. Yeah. You know, of course, there are benefits to seeing time as linear because linear time has allowed us to coordinate and to tell stories and to plan ahead to protect ourselves, you know, to reflect and to grow. But at the same time, it's so trapping. Like we are too complex to be boxed into a timeline. And ironically, that means we kind of have to simplify our way of thinking. I mean, I'm a very like guilt motivated, guilt written person. And I think the only way I've avoided killing myself out of shame is by trying to just not like keep replaying the tape of my failures and instead be like, okay that already happened. There's nothing I can do about it. The only thing I can do is prevent myself from doing that in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all we can do. Sometimes we just have to accept that the past is in the past. For me, sometimes it feels like the past still exists as like somewhere we can go back to, you know, 
whether that's for reference or to move things around or just to like live in there a while and reminisce, it, it feels like like there's something very melancholy about remembering that the past is completely intangible. It's like it's over. You're never getting it back. Like it's just how it is. It's just one more way we don't have control in this world. But coming to terms with that is like one of the things that has set me the most free too. Like I know everybody hears the past is in the past, you know, everybody knows that term, but when you really emotionally embrace it and like kind of start implementing in your daily life, like cutting yourself off when you find yourself reminiscing a little too hard, I feel like there's just like certain freedoms we can get from that. Like you can look at the past in small doses and use it as a tool to understand things, but don't hang out there too long. Spending mental time in the past should be approached like taking acid, you know? You can do a little and find some guidance or enlightenment or whatever, but don't do it all the time and definitely don't talk about it to everyone you know. Oh, yeah. It can definitely be helpful to look to the past. Like, you know, we identify patterns in culture and society and behavior by looking at information from the past all the time. Yeah, even on this fucking podcast. Yeah. But, you know, while it can be used in small doses... It often traps us and we hyperfixate. And that's where self-sabotage comes from. It comes from the past. It comes from our own narratives. It's where stubbornness comes from. It's where we build up armor that's meant to protect us, but often ends up, you know, turning into harmful coping mechanisms or ways that we push people away. I feel like anxiety in general, especially like past dwelling, can feel like we're protecting ourselves from experiencing pain or embarrassment again. Yeah, but in reality, your brain is just forcing you to relive your most painful truths and your body just like doesn't know the difference between reality and memory. So you're just punishing yourself with the most awkward moments you've lived on replay and your body feels like it's living those moments over and over again. Like, have you heard that fact that's like, like, because the body doesn't know the difference between real anxiety and like mental anxiety, if you are worried about having an argument and like you replay having that argument six times in your head your body actually feels like it's had six arguments so then oftentimes when you finally like approach those situations in real life and you have the real argument you've been dreading you're like exhausted because this is technically for your body the seventh time you're having this argument and that can send us off the edge so like it's super important to establish a routine of like trying to remind ourselves of our presentness because it can just end up like sabotaging us in real life (laughs) replaying six arguments in my head in a blunt (laughs) you know it's funny i for some reason one day i just woke up and all of a sudden smoking weed felt like replaying six arguments in my head (laughs) That happens to a lot of people in adulthood. Like, I noticed for a lot of people that smoked a lot of weed in high school, like, there just comes a day where you're like, wow, I can never do this again. Weed actually always made me paranoid, but there was one day where it started making me want to kill myself, and that's when I had to stop. But you're right. You know, we live in our pasts and try to alleviate stress by asserting control. And the same goes for living in the future a little too much. I mean, doom scrolling itself is a form of living in the future. That's a really good point. Because we like are constantly pursuing the next thing that's going to give us a reaction and make us feel better. The ambiguity of the future can be used as a tool for motivation and excitement. But we often see it as like an inevitable oncoming doom or we're chasing it like we're chasing our tail. I think our best bet is to just like do what we can right now and try not to get too caught up in our own stories of what's to come and what's already happened like we make ourselves our own gods that way and there's just nothing more exhausting and dangerous than being your own god we live in an age where like everyone has this free forum to discuss their hypothesis for the future and everyone wants to be the first person to accurately name our societal downfall like and what the fucking next fashion trend is going to be or what the next big health scare is going to be or i mean it's literally the premise of the show right well that's what i'm getting at you know <laughs> getting ahead of people's desires and fears is essential to capitalism and to politics and we we hate on it a lot But it's also essential to entertainment, which is what we do. You know, whether you're a fucking salesman or an artist, most of us are trying to get ahead, to analyze from the inside and the outside, to predict the future and emulate the past. You know, living in the future and the past at the same time while completely disregarding the president is the nature of being online at all. You said disregarding the president. Oh, (laughs) I disregard Sleepy Joe. (laughs) Um, yeah, disregarding the present, you know what I fucking mean. Just the further we get into our fucking techno dystopia, the more we have to fight for our own ability to appreciate the present moment. So as tempting as it can be to constantly be asking what's going to happen, I just deeply encourage everyone to take back some of our own time and just happen. 
Very well said. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, thank you guys so much for listening to this season of What's Gonna Happen. We will be back soon for season three, but in the interim, we're going to start posting some exclusive episodes on our Patreon. So if you want some content to hold you over in the hiatus, be sure to subscribe. Yes, and you can also follow us on Instagram at What's Gonna Happen Pod or on Twitter at WGH Pod. And from the hole in the space-time continuum where we polychronically post these episodes, this has been (laughs) What's Gonna Happen. (laughs) 